Camilla by Joseph Sheridan Lefinu. Chapter One An Early Fright. In Stay Yere, we, though by no means munificent people, inhabit the castle of Shalos. A small income in that part of the world does a great way, goes a great way. Eight or nine hundred a year does wonders. Scarcely enough ours would have answered among wealthy people at home. My father is English. I bear an English name, although I never saw England. But here is this lovely, lovely, lonely and primitive place. Where everything is so marvellously cheap. I really don't see how ever so much more money would at all materially add to our comforts or even luxuries. My father was in Austrian service, tied upon a pension. He patron of Murray and purchased his federal residence, the small estate on which it stands a bargain. Nothing can be more picturesque or solitary. Stands on a slight eminence in the forest. A road very old and narrow passes in front of its drawbridge. Never read in my time as a moat stocked with perch and sailed over by many swans and floating on its surface white fleets of white lilies, water lilies. Over all this, the Shalos shows its many-windowed front. It towers its Gothic chapel. Forest opens in its regular, a very picturesque glade before its gate, and a right a steep Gothic bridge carries a road over a steam that winds in deep shadow through the wood. I have said that this is a very lonely place. Judge whether I say truth. Looking from the hall door towards the road, the forest in which your castle stands, it stands fifteen miles to the right, twelve to the left. Yes, an habit village is about seven of your English miles to the left. Nearest inhabited Shalos and the historical associations that of old General Spielderdorf, nearly twenty miles away to the right. I said the nearest inhabited village, because there is, there is only three miles westward. That is to say, the direction of General Spielderdorf's Shalos, a ruined village, is quaint little church now roofless, in the all of which are mouldering tombs of the proud family. A can Kernstein, now extinct, who once owned an equally desolate chateau, which in the thick of the forest overlooks the silent ruins of the town. Respecting the cause of the desertion is striking a melancholy spot. There is a legend which I shall relate to you another time. I must tell you how now how very small the party could situate the inhabitants of our castle. Don't close servants or those dependents who got occupied rooms in the buildings attached to the Solos. Listen and wonder, my father is the kindest man on earth, but growing old. And I, at the date of my story, only nineteen, eight years have passed since then. I and my father constituted the family at Solos. My mother, a Styrian lady, died in my infancy. I have a good-natured governess who had been with me from, I might also say, my infancy. I could not remember the time when a fat, belligerent face was not familiar face in my memory, a familiar picture in my memory. This was Madame Perorodon, a native of Bern, whose care and good nature now part supply, part supply to me the loss of my mother, though I did not even remember so early I lost her. He made a third of our little dinner party. 
There was a fourth, Mademoiselle de Fontaine, a lady such as you term, I believe, a finishing governess. She spoke French and German, Madame Peronodon, French and broken English, which my father and I added English, which partly to prevent us becoming a lost language. Among us, partly from poetic motives, we spoke every day. Conquerences was a babble, at which strangers used to laugh, and I shall make no attempt at reducing this narrative. There were two or three young lady friends, besides a pretty nearly of my own of my, of my pretty nearly of my own age, who were occasional visitors for longer and shorter terms. These visits I sometimes returned. These were our regular social resources, but of course there were change chance visits for neighbours only five or six leagues distance. Life was, notwithstanding, rather a solitary one, I can assure you. My governess had just so much control over me. You might conjecture such sage persons would, would have in case of a rather spoiled girl, whose only parent louder pretty nearly our own way in everything. Those comes to my sisters produced a terrible impression upon my mind, which, in fact, Never was been a, a face with one of the earliest incidents of my life which I can recollect. Some of you will think it's so trifling that it should not be recorded here. You see, however, by and by, why I mention it, a nursery, as it was called, though I have had it all to myself, was a large room, the upper store, the castle, the steep oak roof. I couldn't have been more than six years old. And one night I woke, looking round the room, my bed failed to see the nursery maid. Neither was my nurse there. I thought myself alone. I was not, I was not frightened. But one of those happy children who is studiously kept in ignorance of ghost stories of fairy tales. All such laws makes up cuff, cover our heads when the door cracks suddenly. A flick of a kind of sparring candle makes a shadow post dance upon the wall. Nearer to our faces is vexed and insulted by finding myself to concede, neglected, I began to, whim, began to whimper preparatorily to a hearty bout of roaring, and to my surprise I saw seldom a very pretty face looking at me from the side of the bed. It was that of a young lady who was kneeling with her hands under the coverlet. I looked at her with a kind of pleased wonder and ceased whimpering. She caressed me with her hands and lay down beside me on, my, on the bed, drew towards me her, smiling, felt immediately delightfully smooth. I fell asleep again. I was wakened by sensation. If two needles ran into my breast, very deep at the same moment, I cried loudly. They just sat back with her eyes fixed on me, then slipped down upon the floor, as I thought, hid herself under the bed. I was now for the first time frightened. I yelled with all my might to main, nurse, maid, nurse, nursery maid, housekeeper, all came running in. In my story, they made light of it, smoothing me all they could meanwhile. The children, child as I was, I could perceive that their faces were pale, with an unwanted look of anxiety. I saw them look under the bed, about the room, and peep under the tables and pluck up open cupboards, and the name housekeeper whispered to the nurse, Let your hand along that head over the bed. Someone did lie there, so sure she did as you did not. Place is still warm. I mean, nurse maid petted me. The whole thing is only in my chest. I told him I felt the puncture, fancying there was no sort of invisible. If any such thing had happened to me, 
housekeeper and two other servants were in charge of the nursery, remaining sitting up all night from the time a servant. Always sat up in the nursery till I was about fourteen. Very nervous for a long time after this, the doctor was called in. He was plaided and elderly. How well I remember his small, long, saturnine face, tightly pitted with smallpox of his chestnut wig. A wild while every second day he came and gave me medicine, which of course I hated. When after I saw his separation, I was in a state of terror. I could not bear to be left alone, lay like the thought it was, it was for a moment. I remember my father coming up and standing at the bedside, talking cheerfully and asking the nurse a number of questions, laughing very heartily at one. The answers patted me on the shoulder, kissed me and telling me not to be frightened. It was nothing but a dream and could not hurt me. But I was not confident, for I knew the visit of the strange woman was not a dream. I was awfully frightened. A little consoled, the nursery maids assuring me it was she that had come in, looked to me, and lay down beside me in the bed. I must have been half dreaming not to have known her face. This, though, the body by the nurse was not quite, did not quite satisfy me. I remember in the course of that day, a vulnerable old man, a black cussock, coming into the room with a nurse and housekeeper, talking to them, to little, talking a little to them, very kindly to me, faces very sweet and gentle, told me they were going to pray and join my hands together, desired me to say softly, while he praying, we were they praying, Lord, hear us all good prayers for us, Jesus Christ's sake. I think these were the very words I often repeated them for myself, nurses for years to make me say them in my prayers. I remember so well thoughtful, sweet look face of the white haired old man, the black cassock. He stood in a rude, lofty brown room, clumsy furniture of fashion, three hundred years old about him, a scantily lit light. Entering a shadowy atmosphere through the small trees, he kneeled and three women with him. They prayed aloud with earnest, quivering voice for what appeared to me a long time, for all my life preceding the event. The event for some time after, it was all still obscure, also, but the scenes I have just described stand out vivid as I say a picture. The phantasmagoria surrounded by darkness. Two, a guest. I'm going to tell you something so strange. It will require all your faith in my vicinity to believe my story. It's not only true, nevertheless, but the truth of which I've been an eyewitness. It's a sweet summer evening. My father asked me, as he did sometimes did, take a little ramble with him along a beautiful forest visa which I have mentioned as lying in front of the Solis. General Spinadoff cannot come to us as soon as I have hoped, said my father as we pursued our walk. He was, he was paid as a visit some weeks when he expected his arrival next day. He would have brought with him a young lady, his niece and ward, Mademoiselle Reinefelt, whom I have never seen, but whom I heard described as a very charming girl. In whose society I promised myself many happy days. I was more disappointed than a young lady living in a town or bustling neighbourhood and possibly imagine a visit and new acquaintance it promised and furnished my daydream for many weeks. How soon does he come? I asked. Not to autumn, not for two months, I dare say, he answered. 
I am very glad now, dear, that you never knew Mademoiselle Varenfort. And why, I asked, both mortified and curious. Because the poor old lady's dead, replied. I quite forget, I forgot I had been not told you. Yet you were not in the room when I received the general's letter for this evening. Very, I was very much shocked. General Benedoff had mentioned in his next first letter, six or seven weeks before, you're not so well, you would wish her, but there's nothing to suggest her motive, suggestion of danger. Here's the general letter, he said, handing it to me, afraid he's great affection. The letter appears to me to have been written very nearly in distraction. He sat down on a rude bench under a group of magnificent lime trees. The sun was setting. For all his melody and splendour, but high in the saline horizon, seeing that follows beside our home, passes under the steep old bridge, a mentioned wound through many a group of noble trees, almost our feet, reflecting its current of failing crimson on the sky. General Spenlinov's letter was so extraordinary, so vehement, in some places so self-contradictory. I read it twice over, second time aloud to my father. Was still unable to account for it, set by supposing the grief that had settled in his mind. I said, lost my darling daughter, for such I loved her. During the last days of her dear Bertha's illness, I am not able to write to you. For then I have no idea of her danger. I have lost, I have lost her, now learn all too late. He died a peace of innocence, the glorious hope of blessed fertility. The fiend of a trade off infiltrated. Inflaterated hospitality and done it all. I thought of receiving into my house innocent gaiety, a charming companion of my lost, my lost birth for heavens, before I have been. I thank God my child died without suspicion of the cause of her sufferings. He's gone without such a conjecturing, conjecturing the nature of her illness, cursed passion of the agent of all its this misery. I devote my remaining days to tracking and distinguishing a monster. I am told I may hope to accomplish my righteous and merciful purpose. Present there is a scarcely gleam of light to guide me. I curse my conceited incredulity, my despicable affliction, superiority, my blindness, my obscenity, ascetity, all too late. I cannot write or talk correctly but now. I'm distracted, so soon I shall have little recovered. I mean to devote myself to a time for a time of quarry, which may possibly lead me to as far as Vienna. So time in autumn, two months hence or earlier, if I live, I will see you. That is, if you hurt me, I will then tell you all that I scarce dare put upon paper now. Farewell, pray for me, be a friend. These terms ended this strange letter. Though I have never seen Bertha write out, my eyes filled with tears at sudden intelligence. I startled as well as profoundly disappointed. Sun had now set. It was twilight by the time I turned the general's letter to my father. It was a sloth, clear evening, delighted speculating upon the possible meanings of violent and current sentences which I had just been just been reading. He had nearly a mile to walk before reaching the road past his loss in front. The time the moon was shining brightly. Brilliantly, Dorbridge met Madame Paradon, Mademoiselle de Montaigne, who had come out without their bonnets to enjoy the exquisite moonlight. Heard the voices gabbling in emanating dialogue. 
as we approach, we join him in the Braille Bridge, turn him to Maya with the turn about to Maya with them the beautiful screen scene. Glade which he had just walked lay before us. On our left a narrow road round Ray, and the clumps of lordly trees that was lost of sight to sight amid the thickening forest. At the right the same road crosses a steep and picturesque bridge near which stands a ruined tower which once guarded the path, pass. Beyond the bridge an abrupt eminence rises, covered with those trees and showing in the shadows some green ivory clustered rocks. Over the swayed and low grounds as a thin film of mist was stealing like smoke, marking the distances with transparent veil. And here and there we could see the river faintly flashing in the moonlight. No softer, sweeter scene could be imagined. The news I had just heard made it melancholy, but nothing could disturb its character, profound sincerity, its enchanted glory, and vagueness of the prospect. My father enjoyed the picturesque. I stood looking sights of his fence beneath us. Two good goddesses, standing governesses, standing a little way behind us, discoursed upon the scene, eloquent upon the moon. Madame Paradon was fat, middle-aged, and romantic. Talked aside, poetically, Mademoiselle de Fontaine, in right of her father, was... He was a German, assumed a physiological, metaphysical, and something of a mystic. Now declared that when the moon shone, a light so intense, and it indicated special spiritual activity, and the effect of the full moon, such a state of brilliancy was manifold. It acted on dreams, it acted on lunacy, acted on nervous people, so marvellous physical influence connected with life. Mademoiselle narrated that her cousin, with his mate in the merchant ship, having taken a nap on deck such a night, lying on his back, his face full in the light of the moon, had wakened off a dream, an old woman clawing him by the cheek, his features horribly drawn to him at one side, his countenance was even never quite covered into equilibrium. The moon is night, she said, is full of an idyllic and magnificent influence, and see when you look behind you, a frontless loss, how its windows flash and twinkle with silver splendour. It is unseen hands that lighted up the rooms to receive fairy guests. There are insolent styles of spirits in which interpose talk to themselves. The talk of others is pleasant to our listless ears. I gazed on, pleased with the twinkle of the lady's conversation. I got into one of my moping, moping modes tonight, said my father, silence of quoting Shakespeare, who, way of keeping up my English, he used to read aloud and said, You're true, I know not my way. I am so sad. It wearies me. You say it wearies you. And how I, I got it, came by it. I've got the rest. I feel it as if it, some great misfortune were hanging over us, Both the poor generals affected their letter. As have something to do with it. At the moment, the unwanted sound of carriage wheels and many hoofs upon the road rested our attention. Seeing them approaching from the high ground, overlooking the bridge, very soon an epipage emerged from that point. Two horsemen first crossed the bridge, then came a carriage drawn by four horses, and two men rode behind. Seeing to be a travelling carriage of personal rank, 
We all immediately resolved in the watching a very unusual spectacle. It became, in a few moments, greatly more interesting. Just as the carriages passed the summit steep bridge, one of the leaders, taken in fright, communicated his panic to arrest. After a plunge or two, halting, broke into a wild gallop, together and dashing between the footsmen. A road in front came thundering along the road towards us, speed of a hurricane. The excitement of the scene was made more painful by the clear, long-drawn screams of a female voice to the carriage window. We all advanced incuriously, and horror, we rather, me rather in silence, rest with various calculations of terror. Our suspense did not last long. Just before I reached the castle drawbridge, on route they were coming, the stands by the roadside, a magnificent lime tree, on the other stands, an ancient stone cross, at sight of which horses now going at pace were perfectly frightful. Swerved so as to bring the wheel over, projecting roots of the tree. I knew what was coming, cut my eyes, unable to see it out, turned my head away. At the same moment, heard a cry from my lady. Friends had gone on a little. Quickly opened my eyes, I saw a scene out of confusion. Two of the horses were on the ground, carried lay upon its side with two wheels in the air. Men were busy removing the traces. Lady with commanding air, the figure got out. And stood with clasped hands, raising the handkerchief as in uh, that was in them every na- every now and then to her eyes. Through the carriage door, the now lifted a young lady appeared to be lifeless. My dear old father, already beside the elderly, elder lady, his hat in his hat in his hand, evidently tendering his aid, sources of his loss. Lady did not appear to hear him. On to have eyes or anything, the slender girl was being placed against the slope of the bank. Approached the young lady, apparently stunned, but she was certainly not dead. Her father had picked himself on being something of a physician. The chest had his fingers on her wrist. Sure, the lady declared herself her mother. Her pulse, a faint and irregular, was evidently still distinguishable. They grasped her hands and looked upward, as if in a momentary transport of gratitude. And immediately she broke out again in a fearful way, which is, I believe, natural to some people. She is what is called a fine-looking woman for her time of life. Must have been handsome. She was tall but not thin, and dressed in belt velvet and looked rather pale, with a proud and commanding countenance, which now agitated strangely. How was ever being so born so to calamity? Who has ever been, uh, who's ever been so born to calamity? I heard her say, last hands as I came up. Here am I on a journey of life and death and persecuting, which, prosecuting, which to lose an hour is possibly to lose all. A child will not have recovered if you've assumed a route. For whom can I say how long? I must leave her. I cannot dare not spend they. How far on, sir? Can you tell me his nearest village? I must leave her here, there. I shall not see my darling, or ever even hear her, till I return three months hence. I plucked my father by the coat and whispered earnestly to his ear. Oh, Papa, pray ask her to let her stay with us. It will be so delightful, do pray. And Madam will entrust your child to the care, my daughter, of a good governess. Madam Peridon, admit her to remain as our guest and my charge, and to return it will confer distinction on the governation upon us. 
We shall treat her with all the care and devotion which the sacred, the sacred trust deserves. I could not do that, sir. It would be to task your kindness to chivalry too coolly, said the lady distractedly. It would, on the contrary, be to confer on us a great, great kindness, a moment when we most need it. My daughter had been disappointed by a cruel misfortune, a visit for which he had long appreciated. A great deal of unhappiness. Confine his journey to our care, be our best consideration. The nearest village on your route is distant. A perfect of falls no such inn as you would could think of placing your daughter at. You cannot allow her to continue her journey for any considerable distance without danger. As you say, you cannot suspend your journey. You must part with her tonight. And now where could you do so with such with more honest assurances of care and tenderness than here? Something in this lady's air pits her distinguish even imposing and a manner so engaging as to press one quite apart the dignity of an equipage, the conviction that she was a person of consequence. When this time the carriage was placed in its upright position, was this quite tractable in its traces but again. The lady threw on her daughter a glance which I fancies were not quite as affectionate as one might have precipitated, but beginning of the scene when she beckoned slightly to my father, I drew two or three steps of him out of the hearing, and talked to him with a fixed and stern countenance, not at all like that which, not at all like that, in which he had hitherto spoken. I feared with wonder that my father did not seem to perceive a change. Also, to speak of Chris, to learn what it could be that she was speaking almost in his ear with so much earnestness and rapidity. Two or three minutes at most, I think. She remained thus employed. When she turned, a few steps brought her where her daughter lay, supported by Madame Paradon. She kneeled beside her a moment and whispered, as Madame supposed a little bend and titch into her ear, and hastily kissed, hastily kissing her. She stepped into her carriage, the door was closed, footmen in stately liveries jumped up behind the outriders, burned on, her pestilons, whips, their whips, cracked their whips, horses plunged and broke suddenly into the furious canter, and threatened soon again come a gallop. Carriage whirled away, heard in the same rapid pace by the two horsemen in the rear.